So this morning we are going to look at Mark chapter 3. Um, from, we're going to take two passages this morning from verse 7 to 12 and 13 to 19. And then next week, Gary Marshall is going to jump back to the end of chapter 2. He really wanted to, uh, had it on his heart to preach this passage at the end of chapter 2, um, Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. So we're just taking these in reverse order. That's not going to matter. It doesn't, doesn't, there's no logical argument that's going to be crushed by doing this or anything. So we're in chapter 3 this morning, and let us read together from Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, well, on the surface of it, those passages that we read don't have a whole lot to do with each other, but as I've studied it, I've become uh, more and more impressed with the way Mark has put these two passages together to communicate a certain message. There's a lot of stuff that's been happening here. Between uh, the time uh, when Randall preached a couple of weeks ago and the passage where uh, Jesus there and what is happening now, Jesus has been doing a whole lot of stuff around northern Israel. He's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been ministering, he's been basing himself in this little village called Capernaum, and from there he's been uh, reaching out in a whole lot of different situations, saying these profound things, talking about the kingdom of God and the UN Galleon, remember we talked about that, the good news, the gospel, the announcement of victory that's coming, and implementing that victory in various ways. He's had a pretty hectic uh, ministry schedule. And it's, it's a bit of a glimpse into the humanness of Jesus that there comes this point in chapter 3 where he actually has to withdraw from the crowd. Uh, Jesus wasn't the ever-ready bunny. He just couldn't keep going and going and going. There came a point where he had to actually pull back. His, his physical tanks were depleted, and he had to take some R&R. And he, he, he retreated to one of his favorite getaway locations, which was the Sea of Galilee. Here it's just called the lake but it's also the Sea of Galilee, this big body of water in northern Israel, and it's the site of a whole lot of stuff that Jesus did. When he walked on the water, that was the Sea of Galilee. When he calmed the storm, that was the Sea of Galilee. A lot of significant stuff happens around there. But this time, he's just getting away from the crowd. And what happens is that there is this mob of people who don't let him get away quite so easily. These people have been attracted to him from literally all over the country. If you plot these, these different geographic markers on a map, you will see it represents pretty much the, the, the breadth and width of the entire area of Palestine. And Mark could just as easily have said, people came from the north and the south and the east and the west, all to see Jesus. Not just from around this local area, 
but his popularity was such that people were attracted to him from all over the country. People were making journeys that would take us today at least half a day in the car to get from one end of Israel to the other. And these people were doing this on donkeys, they were walking, they were making this massive trek to get to Jesus. Why? Because in verse 8, they heard all he was doing. It's quite significant. They weren't particularly interested in the stuff he was saying, not so much taken with what he was teaching, but what they loved was what he was doing. And what was he doing? He was healing. And you've got to think, man, a day when there is just a fraction of the medical technology that exists today, and people have nothing like the hospitals that we have and, and the medical training that our doctors have and the technology that we have access to. The, the smallest little ailments could take your life. You know, a, a fever, a cold, an infection, you know, not treated properly as we have the luxury of having them treated today. These things became life-threatening. So life expectancy was way, way lower. And people struggled with all kinds of things. Disease was just rampant. And injuries and illnesses and ailments were really, really big things. And when you get someone like Jesus coming along, and there were other miracle workers in his day. I mean, he wasn't the only one who was going around claiming to be a divine figure and allegedly performing these miracles. There were others that, that were setting themselves up with similar claims. But Jesus was significant because he had a 100% success rate. This was significant. I mean, he was raising people from the dead. And with one touch, he was curing people, and it was instant, and it was immediate. And his reputation was such that right across the entire country, people are hearing about this guy, this Jesus. He's good. And if you've got something wrong with you, you need to get to him. Do, pay whatever you need. Walk as far as you have to. Get to Jesus, because he will take care of you. And it's just this desperation, really, that you see of people absolutely desperate to get a piece of Jesus, to just touch his robe, to touch him, lay hands, and hopefully receive this immediate healing that he's offering. So Jesus is trying to get a bit of rest. The crowds are pushing in, trying to get a piece of him, not letting him have any respite at all. And you see that some of these people were struggling not just with physical ailments, but you have these people here who are possessed by evil spirits. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time to go into demonology and stuff today, but just to point out that these evil spirits are associated with this figure we met back in Mark chapter 1, the Satan. They are his agents, they are his helpers, they are his minions who do his bidding. And they are real, and they are personal, and they, in some cases, are taking over, literally inhabiting the bodies of people and overriding the will, overriding the personality, and dictating the behavior and the thinking and the actions of these people. There's a massive concentration, as you read the Gospels, of demonic activity around the life of Jesus, more so, I would say, than is normative today. I don't think you can just read the Gospels and say, well, that's what we would expect in every situation, this massive concentration of demons. Of course not. This is the Son of God. Every demon in existence is going to be employed in Palestine in that time to try and take him down. That's why there are so many. And, and you simply don't necessarily see that concentration today, especially not in the West, more so in the developing world. But here you have these evil spirits. And interestingly, see how they react to Jesus? When these people were possessed by spirits, possessed by unclean spirits, come to Jesus, you would think they're going to throw everything at him. You would think they're going to attack and curse him and try and take him down. And such is his authority that when these evil spirits encounter the presence of the living God in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, all they can do is cry out, you are the son of God. Isn't that amazing? The demons themselves 
This is why James, in his epistle later in the New Testament, says, so you believe in God. Big deal. That's my translation. Big deal. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You know, belief in itself is not convincing. The demons acknowledge. And the irony that Mark is pointing out, which is quite subtle, is that here you have a crowd of people pushing in towards Jesus, but failing to recognize who he really was. And it takes the demons of hell to actually identify correctly who it is that they are in the presence of. And by their own confession of Jesus as Lord, they are putting to shame the crowd over here who are pushing forward, pushing each other out of the way, shoving, wanting a piece of Jesus, get my healing and go home, and failing to know that they are in the presence of the Son of the living God. It's the demons that see him. It's the demons that acknowledge him. And yet Jesus tells them to be quiet and not to tell anybody about him. Why? I think partly at least because Jesus has determined these demons are not going to be the instruments of his revelation. They're not going to be the ones through whom the good news comes. And he's saying, yeah, you're right, but you are not going to be the ones to bear the message. You're not going to be the evangels. You're not going to be the carriers of the gospel. So he shuts them up and, and selects another group instead to take that message out. But you see this crowd of people who fail to recognize Jesus, each with their own agenda, but ultimately each just wanting a benefit from Jesus for themselves. And friends, there is today still a crowd of people that follows Jesus. This, this, this mob, this crowd is still with us and still very much real and still following Jesus around wherever he goes. And it's not a crowd of people that's out there somewhere. It's not just a, a crowd far from God and far from church. This is a crowd of people today that fill churches on Sundays. It's a crowd of people often that attend life groups and who send their kids to, to Sunday school and who have embroidered Bible verses on their walls and who say grace before meals and who serve in, in church ministries and, and head teams and projects and champion great humanitarian causes and do all of these things. Good things, kingdom things, spiritual things, but ultimately they don't recognize who Jesus is. They don't see him. They don't correctly identify him. They don't really know him. And you might be in this boat today. I mean, you might be a Christian. You might be in, and you've had your ticket clipped for heaven, and you're secure, and you've been whatever, baptized, christened, confirmed, You've been ordained, whatever. You're serving in leadership. You're doing great things. And yet, as you sit here this morning and reflect on it and, and look within your own heart, you realize that, honestly, at, at the heart of it all, you don't truly, really, deeply know Jesus. You don't truly recognize who He is. You're a bit like those that Paul talked about in 1 Timothy 3.5, who have a form of godliness but deny its power. You don't truly realize what it is that you possess. You may be, quote, unquote, a Christian, but, but this morning, for some reason, you're far from God. And as you analyze your own heart, what you're struck with is emptiness, and what you're struck with is just dryness, and just a desert. It's just a wilderness in your soul this morning, and there's just this chasm that has opened up between you and God, and you don't quite know how to get back, but you know that things are not right between you and God. Perhaps there used to be this great flame that was burning. There used to be this passion. There used to be this incredible vigor and zest in your relationship with Him, but it's just not there. It's died out. And there's that hollowness, and there's that feeling of emptiness, and just stagnation. You know that feeling that you've just plateaued? 
spiritually, and it's been a long time since you've really seen much growth in your life and really experienced that life-giving power of the Holy Spirit pulsing through your veins. You are not consumed by the grace of God this morning. You know that feeling? You long for it, maybe, but it's just, it's just seems, seems so elusive. It just seems just out of reach. And you notice what Jesus doesn't do with the crowd. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't rebuke them. But he gets his disciples to get a little boat ready so that he can just set out a little bit from the lake, uh, from the shore, and put some distance between him and the crowd. He creates a buffer zone, really. And this is kind of how it is when you're in the crowd. You know, it's not that Jesus rebukes you, it's not that he orchestrates events necessarily to create catastrophes in your life, but often you, you do find that your relationship with God is characterized more often than not by distance rather than intimacy. And you find that Jesus is just out of reach, that your prayers just feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling, and there's just not that intimacy. It's just, you, you can't say with Paul, to live is Christ. And it's no longer I that live, it's Christ that lives in me. You long to long for that, but it's not your present experience. You're part of that crowd, and you're pushing forward, and you're following Jesus, and you're doing good things. But it's a bit like those in Matthew 7, who, who, Jesus, who, who come to Jesus at the end of time and say, Lord, didn't we do this, and didn't we do that, and didn't we join churches, and didn't we tithe, and didn't we give to building projects, and didn't we send our kids to kids' church, and all that stuff. And Jesus says what? Depart from me. Why? Because I never knew you. We didn't have relationship. You were doing this stuff, but, 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 but your relationship with me was a bit like your relationship with your bank. It's just formal. You, you were the customer, and I was the bank, and it was this institutional, there was a relationship there, but it wasn't personal. It wasn't a connection. I wasn't the life-giving power that just grasped a hold of your life and centered your entire existence. That's what Jesus is wanting from us. That's what he's offering to us, perhaps. But so few of us live with that reality because we seem to be content being part of the crowd. And if you're here and you see yourself as part of that crowd and yet there's something in you that longs for more than that, this morning there's something in you that longs to step away from that crowd and you're just a bit sick and tired of being a part of it, then there is hope. And this is where the second passage comes in. This is why I think Mark puts this next chunk of Scripture right after the previous one. Because in verse 13, look at this, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Complete contrast with the previous scene. You see, you've got, you start with this mob mentality, it's just bedlam, people are pushing over each other to get to Jesus, and, and sort of suffocating him, and he's forced back into this boat and so on, and now suddenly it's just a completely different story. Jesus is in control, he is sitting on this mountainside, he is calling to him those he wants, and they come to him. There is a sense of order here. There is a sense of purpose. There is deliberate intent now. Jesus is forming. This isn't a crowd. This is a community. This is the community of those whom Jesus calls. And we know that even though he just called at this time a handful of people, that invitation that he is giving to be with him, to come and be part of this community is an invitation that he extends to every single person, every single one of us. There is an invitation on offer this morning to step away from the crowd to leave that behind, it does not have to be what you're resigned to, that crowd Christian existence. There is more. The invitation is to be part of this community. This is the invitation Jesus is giving. He calls to himself those he wants, and they come to him. And then verse 14, look at this, is genius. 
He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now, why 12? This is just a little sidelight that is too good not to mention. Why 12? 12 tribes of Israel, right? The nation of Israel from its earliest beginnings right back to the 12 sons of Jacob. This is how Israel was, was constituted as a nation. These 12 sons, these 12 sons became the heads of tribes and Israel was known as a nation of 12 tribes. Until when? Until the exile. Until they were taken into captivity and the tribes were scattered. And from that point, from really the, the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity, from that point Israel has never had 12 visible tribes because they were scattered to the four corners, of the known world at least. And never truly restored because even when they returned, there were only some that returned and the tribal lines were never quite clear. And in Jesus' day, there was a whole lot of mixing and, and so on that had happened. And so these 12 tribes were never really distinguished again. And yet the promises of those like Ezekiel, of what would God do when he finally returned, finally brought the kingdom in, finally put the world to rights, one of the images that comes is the unification of Israel, the putting back together of these 12 tribes that you'll be reunited. There'll be the reforming of a nation and there will be one people of God all over again. And now Jesus goes and chooses 12 representatives. What do you think he's doing? He is saying that time is here. The end of exile is over and I'm reforming the people of God. The promises of Ezekiel for the unity of God's people are coming true before your eyes. Here they are, the 12 tribes. And later, uh, I think in Matthew, he talks about the 12 disciples sitting on 12 thrones, judging uh, on the, at the end of time. And all of this speaks of that end of exile, the bringing back together and the reforming of the people of God. But it's actually even better than that because I cannot resist showing you this. Remember the Exodus story? Right. The, the, the children of Israel coming through the Red Sea where God defeats the powers of evil and then brings them to Mount Sinai where he constitutes them as a nation. Now look at these two passages we have just read. It's going to blow your mind. Are you ready? First of all, we started at the lake, at the sea, where Jesus defeats the foreign powers, the powers of evil, and then we move to the mountain where Jesus calls to himself 12 disciples, those whom he wants, and reforms the people of God. It's the Exodus story all over again. I'm so excited about this, man. <laughs> telling you. This was like opening a kinder surprise for me when I read this. This was fantastic. It is the Exodus story. You know, that's like the motto of our series in Mark. You know, it's the Exodus, stupid. That's basically how, how it is. Everywhere, it just crops up. And, and what I simply wanted to point out by that is just helping you to see how, again, these narratives are pegged back to the big story that Mark's showing us, how the story of Jesus is the story of the Exodus all over again, but better. It's the Exodus 4.0, you know, it's the Exodus upgrade, and the redemption is greater, and the promises are better, and the deliverance is, is more complete. And it's, this is the new Exodus. This is what he's showing. So he calls to himself 12 disciples, and what is the purpose of this community that he's forming around himself? There's three things here that, well, let me read verse 14 again. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. You know, we, because we rush to the second two, we miss the first one. And if you underline your Bible, if you're an underliner, you have to underline this. These three words, be with him. It's the first thing that Jesus mandates of this community. Before he tells them to do stuff, 
before he tells them to go and preach and exercise demons and so on, he says, I want you just to be with me. He called these people that they might be with, isn't that rich? That they might be with him. It's the primary purpose of this messianic community is that people might be with Jesus, not because he's lonely and desperately needs the companionship, but because he is interested in pulling people together around himself, reforming the people of God around the very person of Jesus Christ. And those who are now part of that community are there first and foremost to be with Jesus. That's what it means, friends. Before we spin off in a million directions, doing stuff and running programs and doing things in Jesus' name and championing causes and even living good lives and doing moral deeds, yada, yada, yada. Our first calling is simply to be with Jesus, to be with Him, to know Him deeply and richly and truly. That is above everything else we exist, to know Jesus. This is why the shorter Westminster Catechism says the chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Isn't that great? To enjoy Him forever. To be with Him, to know Him. How are we doing in this area, friends? How are we doing? Because it comes down to an individual level, doesn't it? It, it is true that in that communal sense, we are here to be with Jesus as we are this morning and at other times when we gather. But the body of Christ is made up of men and women who have chosen Christ for themselves. And we, that question comes back to us. How are we personally doing at just being with Jesus? At slowing and waiting on Him and listening to Him and just spending time with Him. You know, not, not five minutes before you rush off to work in the morning, not two minutes before you go to sleep at night, but time in His presence as you would invest in any intimate relationship. Time spent just marinating yourself in the Scriptures and just drinking in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and allowing those waves of mercy and grace just to break over you again. When was the last time you did that? Just actually carved out some time and just sat at the feet of Jesus and just, just were with Him. And just spent that time with Him. Maybe not even talking, but just listening and just being in His presence. It's that verse, be still and know that I am God. And especially in a 100K an hour society, how important is it that we are taking that time that we are carving out in our schedules those chunks when we are just with Him, when we're drawing aside to worship, to meditate, to pray, to listen, to be with Jesus. And it's out of that, that being with Him, that knowing Him richly and deeply and fully and having an intimate and personal connection with Him, out of that stuff, the other two things flow, but only out of being with Jesus. It's as these disciples were with Jesus and in the context of that communion that they had with the, the rabbi that these other two things happened where he sent them out to preach. And this, of course, is central to the calling of the, of the church, of the ecclesia, that we would be preachers in a sense, not just in me standing up here doing this, but we would be the evangels, those who take the message to those who don't yet know Jesus. This is why we have Introducing God coming up, so that we can do this function that Jesus first gave to these early community members of preaching the Word. And even easier than that, we can just bring other people along and have them exposed to someone else preaching the Word at times. But that's incumbent on us 
to be fulfilling that function of proclaiming the message, the good news about Jesus. And then there's this other function here, which many of you are going to get excited about, of driving out demons. And so just before you go and start an exorcism ministry, uh, Shaw Community Christian Church, the application is clearly broader than just exercising personal demons. Although I, I, I won't negate the fact that there is a legitimate place for that. As long as demons are real and in the church, uh, then, or in the world at least, then there is going to be a place to confront them. I think the problem we have though is that we typically want to see demons around every corner and, 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 and attribute every problem, sin or just brokenness or what, what have you, to demons. And sometimes that can be simply an abdication of responsibility for dealing with the issue and acknowledging that it can be our own sin nature that has to be confronted and crucified and we move on. Uh, nevertheless, there is this, uh, this function, and I would simply say that in the broadest terms, it applies to us in the sense of pushing back the forces of darkness wherever we find them. Uh, people can be bound not just through demon possession, but through a whole bunch of things. People are, people are enslaved to, to all kinds of things, just to themselves and their own selfish desires, to, to various kinds of addictions, to mental conditions that just trap them in a state of depression or anxiety or rage and frustration. These kinds of things enslave people today just as much as a demon can. And part of our mandate as a church is to roll back the kingdom of darkness wherever we find it, through restoring people, restoring and helping them to renew their minds and be renewed, being the partners and agents of the Holy Spirit in restoring dignity and value and self-worth and bringing healing and bringing comfort and speaking love and speaking edification and encouraging and imaging a countercultural society in the midst of the world. That is how we roll back the powers of darkness. That is how we confront head-on the forces of evil in our world today, is by imaging something different and swimming upstream from what's all around us. This is what we're called to do. But it comes out of, again, that intimacy with Jesus. It is not just about going and living some moralistic life. It is not just about do better, try harder, and behave yourself. This is in the context of a living, breathing relationship with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of it. That's first and foremost. That's where it all springs from, and it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, and the hands move, and the feet move, and so on. That's, that, that, that's what it's about. And then finally, there's this great little list here of the actual disciples whom Jesus appoints. Mark bothers to mention them by name, and uh, many of them, you know, their names won't mean a whole lot to us, but let me just point out a couple that are of note. You have James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who Jesus gives this little nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Right, which is not a cute little name. It probably means they had anger issues. They were probably pretty fiery guys, pretty zesty. So immediately you've got like problems in the camp. You're a couple of loose cannons on the team. And then you move on. And, but check this out at the end. This is unbelievable. The last two guys, look at this. Simon the Zealot. Zealot is not a nice adjective. It is not a descriptive like Simon was very zealous or Simon the Merciful. Zealot in the first century Palestine context was a technical term for a revolutionary party of people who believed that the best response to Rome, to their Roman occupiers, was violence and force. And that zeal was something that you did with a sword. And these guys were literally responsible for the Jewish uprising of AD 66 that resulted in the Romans coming and ramsacking the temple and leveling it. These were guys, they were basically terrorists. That's the, that's the closest equivalent, urban terrorists. And they would just go after the Roman governing authorities and just try and take them down because they believed the kingdom was going to come in a military sense and we are going to bring it about with a sword and spear. This is how it's going to happen. So Simon the Zealot, you have a revolutionary in the party. And then this last guy, 
Judas Iscariot, whom we are usually most interested in because he is the guy that ended up betraying Jesus. But why does he have two names? Have you ever wondered that? No one else has two names. Iscariot was not his last name. It wasn't like Judas Smith, Judas Iscariot. Iscariot was quite possibly the name of a party that he belonged to called the Sicarii. The Sicarii were also called the Dagomen. They stood alongside the Zealots as another revolutionary party and differed really only in their methodology. These guys would wear loose, big, baggy cloaks, concealing their daggers. They would move stealthily among the crowd, and when they found their victim, usually a member of the ruling Jewish aristocracy, they would whip out the dagger, slip the guy's throat, and move on through the crowd without ever being detected. This is how the Sicarii lived and moved and had their being. And it, honestly, it is difficult for me to explain why Jesus took these two guys into his... If, if that is true, and you've got a zealot and a Sicarii, in this group, it is, I am at a loss to explain why Jesus chose. Their, their agendas were so categorically different to where Jesus was tracking. And you would look at the crowd and say, surely they are the people that are going to be close to Jesus. Surely they are the ones that, are going, that Jesus would choose. Not these guys, not this zealot and this Sicarii member, these men of violence, these men of treachery and terrorism. What is Jesus doing? This, this is going to self-destruct his entire community. And yet, in a way that only God and his providence can explain, Jesus bypasses the crowd, and he chooses these two guys and ten others. Presumably, simply because he finds with them an open heart and finds with them something that he can work with, even though one of those stories ended really, really badly and Judas eventually betrayed him. Jesus still takes him at this point. He still sees something there he can work with. He still sees a desire on the part of these two guys to want to be with him, not just to tug at his cloak to receive something for themselves, but a desire to be with him. And for Jesus, that's enough. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't even have to be on the same page. You don't even have to have the right agenda or whatever. You just have to have an open heart and a desire to say, God, I want to be with you. I want to know you. I am so far from where I should be. I have none of the answers I should have. My life is frankly a complete mess and it's been that way for a long time. But here I am. And when Jesus sees a heart like that, he says, all right, I've got something I can work with now. Let's go. Follow me. Follow me. 